Today, we are talking to a brilliant occupational therapist. Join us today on Fostering the Future. Welcome to the Fostering the Future podcast, a show about all things child welfare, dependency, adoption, and foster care. Here are your hosts, veterans in the world of child welfare, Jack and Kat. believe that every human has incredible and equal value regardless of what side of the courtroom we sit on. We hope that everyone feels welcome and accepted here on Fostering the Future. Make sure you follow us on Facebook, or Instagram as Fostering the Future Podcast, or check us out on our website at fosteringthefuturepodcast.org. This is Kat, and I'm here with Jack, and today we have a very special guest in the Fostering the Future studio. We have RG, who is an occupational therapist. So RG, let me ask you a very serious question. What is your favorite drink at Starbucks? I like the London Fog Small with almond milk. That sounds good. I like the London Fog. I'm a big fan of that. I usually get my London Fog with almond milk, so. RG, let me ask you, what was your first experience? with foster care. I had watched a show and uh, it was about kids who had special needs and it was a group home in Greece. And I remember sitting there I was in high school and I told my dad, this is terrible that all these kids are have special needs and they're all put in this group home and they're they're not getting any kind of special services or anything like that. And I, I was not an OT at the time. I was 17. And my dad said, well, this is just how they do it. This is the way it is. And I thought, well, that's not right just because that's how it is. And so when I found out about foster care, you know, as I was growing up and everything, I, the more parents I talk to, I think it's amazing how many parents that are in foster care know about OT. And I love that we have a different approach here, obviously in the United States. My father is from Greece, so that's why I had an interest in that documentary when I was watching it back then. But now it's different there. It's not that way anymore. Families do care for their kids with special needs. So is that documentary the reason you wanted to become an occupational therapist? No, there was at the Marine Aquarium in Clearwater, there was a dolphin sunset, Sam, and there was a dolphin assisted therapy program there. And they did occupational therapy and people flew in from all over the world and did therapy with their kids with autism and cerebral palsy and special needs. And I had seen that in the paper and I thought, what is this occupational therapy and what are they doing? This is super cool. I actually wanted to work with dolphins at SeaWorld. I wanted to be a trainer. So when I saw the two mixed together, I thought, Mm -hmm. oh, this is interesting. I can see you doing that. Be fun. What drove your decision to work with kids? I can't imagine working with any other population. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when when you go to graduate school, you have to observe different types of therapy settings. So I worked in the hospital. I did hand therapy. I worked in skilled nursing facility. And I knew that was not for me. Being in pediatrics is always where my heart has been. 
Yeah, I think that's obvious, Hmm. knowing you. Can you tell me what your current position is and what that entails? Currently, I am a mobile occupational therapist. I go to homes and I go to schools or wherever the child is, if they're at their grandparents' house, their aunt's house, it doesn't matter as long as there's an adult present. And the company that I work for, we do all home programming. So when the child is seen for therapy, they get a home program and they're to carry out that home program for that child after I leave. So kids who are in care generally experience trauma in the form of like drug exposure, neglect, abuse, even just being separated from their families. How do those things affect the body of a child? We all experience things and perceive things differently. We all take in information differently and how our bodies process that information. Some people can cope Mm -hmm. naturally and some people cannot. I would say the underlying most common factor that I see in kids is anxiety. So as far as symptoms go, when I first observe a child or talk to the parent, my goal is that they feel comfortable with me and that they are able to engage in whatever activity that I bring. I want to do something that's interesting to them. I want to bring something that motivates them, that helps them build a bond with me so that later on the techniques that I do with them, whether it's exercises or massage or conversations, techniques, you know, they're okay with putting headphones on. They're okay with me brushing their body. They're okay with me manipulating their body. Mm -hmm. I want to make sure that I'm not ever causing more trauma. Mm -hmm. My job is that they're enjoying and engaging and they're connecting with me so that they're not scared more. They're not having more fear. I think a lot of times people um, see the things that kids do that might be the results of like trauma or drug exposure or neglect or abuse, and they see it as behavior. And I think sometimes it's actually a symptom of something else, you know, and you mentioned anxiety. Can you talk about some of the other symptoms that you see in kids? Aggression, anger, fight or flight behavior, frozen behavior, refusing to eat, refusing to go to the bathroom, difficulty with sleep. Those are very common things that parents talk about. Difficulty potty training, very picky eaters, clothing sensitivity, difficulty with keeping shoes on, not wanting or being okay playing alone or being alone in any shape, wear, or form. Mm-hmm. Just to color a picture or mm-hmm. play with their toys. They have to be constantly on their parents being held. So my goal as an OT when I come into a family's house is to hear all these things that are issues and then try to peel away the onion and figure out, okay, well, what's what's the problem? What's what's causing this issue? What What is making these quote unquote behaviors where the child cannot do the things that age appropriately they should be doing? And so in a way, as an OT, you're kind of a detective. You're kind of constantly trying different techniques and protocols to see, okay, well, what's going to work? What's not going to work? And making it so that this child can get a better night's sleep. This child can eat more kinds of foods. This child can joyfully and jubilantly experience their environment, mm-hmm. touch different textures, go barefoot if they want to, or wear shoes if they want to. <laughs> Just enjoy their life. Correct. Like engage in their own life better. Exactly. That the parent has a better life too. 
you know, because parents are stressed and my job is to help bring that stress down. So they're not like held hostage by their child. (laughs) Exactly. By their diet or refusal to use the bathroom or being up all night. Yes. If you can't sleep, you're not going to be able to function properly the next day. It's not easy to raise eight kids when one of them has kept you up all night. Yeah. So how does OT help heal the body? The healing is from the inside out. A lot of times families will ask me, oh, can I just get a fidget toy? or can I just use a weighted blanket or can I just have a chewy tube or something like that? And those are good for the interim, but the goal is to really change the nervous system, change the neurology, make huge internal gains where the child doesn't need to rely on those external things. That's my philosophy. We need to make the brainwave changes, the neurological changes inside the body so that those things last and that the children are able to make those gains and growth so that they no longer need those supports, those -hmm. external supports. So what are some of the tools that you use in your therapy? I love games. (laughs) When I bring games in, the kids are all excited and they, you know, want to participate in the games. And then I kind of shape and mold the therapy session. Okay, well, we have to do this before we can get to the games. So when we do exercises or we do different protocols, they learn that they have to comply with mm-hmm. the therapy part of it. And then they get to have the reward of doing the games mm-hmm. and things like that. Uh, different programs I use, I use therapeutic listening. I use Neuronet. I've used interactive metronome in the past, but being mobile, that's very difficult to do. What's Neuronet? Neuronet is a program that helps work on what's called interhemispheric integration. It's a computer-based program designed by Nancy Rowe, and it's a series of exercises where the kids have to talk and move in sync with the model. What it works on is timing, motor planning, it helps with math skills, and it helps with reading skills. Most of the kids are, I would say, seven-ish that I start with. But I've seen a lot of progress with it. I really like that program a lot. It's You can Google it. www.stepuptolearn is the program information. It's a great program. Therapeutic listening is based on headphones. That helps with sensory processing skills, mm-hmm. homeostasis of the body, sleep-wake cycles, bowel-bladder functioning. Helps with listening so that kids understand what is pertinent information versus extraneous information. Mm-hmm. So auditory filtering. Sound sensitivity. So kids who have sensitivity to lawnmowers and blow dryers and I need that <laughs> I'm sensitive to all sounds <laughs> it really it, adults use it too I think it's, I need to get it's that it's not just <laughs> exclusively designed for children I feel like I say all day long turn it down and my kids are like it's not even loud and I'm like it's so loud other programs I use are techniques from MNRI lots and lots and lots of techniques from MNRI I love that program so I went to one of the continuing educations with MNRI and I learned so much. I love that you did. That's awesome. I did. I learned about them from you and it was so, I mean, I just learned such an incredible amount of information. We are now entering the part of the podcast <laughs> where the Florida thunderstorms come. Yes, it's afternoon here in Florida. RG, I find that so many kids that are in foster care that have experienced trauma, abuse, neglect, all, you know, drug exposure, all of these things that you often see for kids in care, I see such a high percentage of them needing OT and having these symptoms that can be alleviated by OT. 
Why do you think that it is needed at such a higher rate for kids who are in care? The reason that they need OT, maybe even more than children that haven't been in the foster care system, is because of the duration of instability in their lives. It causes prolonged and chronic stress. That stress in turn causes difficulties emotionally, potentially for them, because when you have chronic stress, your emotions may suffer. And the thing as an occupational therapist that I look at is reflex integration. Reflexes are something that develop in utero and should be integrated as you grow and develop through the first couple years of your life. But with that prolonged stress, our bodies go into a protective state. And so we can hold on to certain reflexes because we need to protect our brains and our bodies. So when I'm looking at a kiddo and I evaluate them, I look at their reflexes and then I start to work on those reflexes to help integrate them. And that's when I see kids becoming more calm, kids being more grounded, maybe making more eye contact, being less sensitive to sound, being able to sit at a dinner table, being able to wear their clothes. All of those reflexes impact all those things that parents are telling me are an issue. And they think that the child is just being difficult or they think the child is just being defiant. But really there's that underlying reason why. I mean, we're everybody's busy and everybody's, you know, trying to provide for their families and trying to make dinner and trying to get the homework done and do these things. And so it's really easy to look at these symptoms as behavior. And it's really important to know that most of this really is symptomatic of something bigger going on. We have high expectations of our children. They go to school all day. Mm -hmm. And then when they come home, they're expected to do more homework, Mm -hmm. chores, sit still, eat your dinner, behave. Now go take a shower and then go to sleep when I tell you to. And sometimes kids are just holding it together all day long, trying to be a good Mm -hmm. listener, trying to be focused, trying to do the right thing. They're navigating their peer relationships. They want to be liked. They want to fit in. And then when they come home, mm-hmm. they're falling apart. They are. And they have, there's like such a critical and enormous need for play, not just for kids six and under. That's just how they learn best. But even kids who are much older than six, they need to play. And play is like the opposite of depression in a child. Like kids need to be playing. And our current schedules leave little to no time for true like organic play. Like, you know, where most people are on the go, on the go, school, school, dinner, cleanup, homework, bath, you know, just on the go, like few things provide me more joy when I'm like working with a child or seeing my own kids and when I watch them and play I think it's like just magical like watching kids play even my big kids will sometimes engage with my little one a couple months ago they all lined up her stuffed animals and vaccinated all of them and (laughs) you know (laughs) but you know they they're responding to the world that we live in and kids need we need to play too but kids desperately need to play and they don't really have the opportunity to do that when they are engaged in like a hypervigilance and fight or flight it's funny how all of our worlds are so interlinked but (laughs) she saw my oldest son like big kid cat when little boy cat was in pre-k he refused to speak from day one like he never spoke at school he just wouldn't and I didn't really see it as that big of a deal but the school did and RG was already seeing big boy cat and 
I was trying to get little boy cat in with a therapist because I was thinking it must be anxiety or something mental health. And I was actually away. I was in Atlanta and RG said, can I just, you know, evaluate him or see him? So I was like, you can, but he's probably fine. But he wasn't fine. He wasn't. And after seeing RG, his selective mutism did resolve. And she was like the magic maker in that whole situation. I mean, he would not speak at school. Like if he needed to use the bathroom, he was not going to tell anybody. Like one day I forgot his water bottle. He did not tell anybody. He didn't have water all day long. And he'd been to this preschool since he was two. So these are all people that he knew, kids that he knew, teachers that he knew, everybody that he knew. So it's not like he was just being shy. But when I look back at my pregnancy, I had a very stressful experience when I was like six weeks pregnant. And I had another extremely stressful life experience when I was like a week or two from my due date. And I always look at those and think all that anxiety and all that stress and all that cortisol in his little baby brain. And all of those, I'm sure, are factors for him. But every time I think about you and about OT, I always think about that rapid change for him. And even though I can't go back and help those reflexes integrate for him and his infancy like they should have, we were able to do it for him as a four or five-year-old, I don't remember. And I'm so grateful for that because he still is a child who's prone to maybe anxiety, prone to um, be an observer other than a participant, but he was able to integrate that reflex. It was so interesting because after you did your assessment and you said that I think he had a retained fear paralysis and a retained moral mm-hmm. and you explained what that was. I remember I scared him one day. I walked into his bedroom and he didn't know I was coming so I accidentally startled him and he threw his arms up just like a brand new baby would who hadn't been swaddled and I thought oh my gosh there it is. Yes. Like my four or five year old clearly has a retained fear paralysis so anyway it was definitely the thing that he needed. And I will say I I always joke that I had like what an eight year waiting <laughs> list. I mean, RG is hard to come by. Um, and I think it's because everybody knows how fantastic she is. She definitely has a reputation. So when Jack Jr., when we adopted him, he started doing a couple things, but I had just become a parent. So I didn't really realize there was anything different about it. I just thought it's how kids were, you know? Um, The thing that is the most memorable is he used to put his head down like a bull and ram into my stomach. And I just thought, you know, he's being energetic. He's a little boy, whatever. Um, But he would do that over and over. And a friend of mine who was also an adoptive parent saw it at some point and said, ooh, have you had an OT eval? And I'm like, what are you saying? There's nothing wrong with my kid. Leave him alone. But then um, I started like Googling and asking other people who knew a thing or two. And they're like, oh yeah, definitely get that checked out. Um, Just because of like, I guess something about the way he did that was that he was looking for that feeling of sensory input. So we asked the doctor for an OT eval. And they were like, I don't see a need for it. So, but they said, but is he stuttering like this all the time? And I said, eh, sometimes. And they said, well, we can put in for a speech eval. <sighs> so they sent us for a speech eval. And when we were doing the speech eval, they were like, have you done an OT eval? I'm like, can I get one? And they ended up doing it and they gave him occupational therapy. However, because of the type of place that it was, it was all people who had like just graduated while the occupational therapists that Jack Jr. worked with when he was young were very sweet. They were very kind. I didn't really see much change in what, you know, from beginning to end. I I would say he was in it for a year. It took a lot of time to go to all those appointments. It wasn't at home. You had to go there. They were like, he's graduating next week. And I'm like, oh, okay. Like, I haven't really seen change, but okay, he graduated. You're the expert. He was having these problems. and, And anytime I reached out to people that I knew and asked for advice, I had like six different people tell me, have you heard about RG? Have you heard about RG? I was one of them. He needs RG. You and were I'm one sure of them. I'm sure your sister was one of them too. My sister was one of them. And and but there were other people too. And they're like, he needs 
RG. He has to have RG. RG needs a crown. Yeah. But at the time, we always joke because RG does have quite a wait list, I think, because of the way in which her organization works, but also because so many people know about her and yeah. want her. We weren't able to get her at the time. But what was it? Eight years later? It was a long time. It was like an eight year wait list. It was a long time. And I mean, I think there are like some insurance things that make yes. it hard too, but I, I don't think we qualified initially. Yeah. But we were able to qualify this time and it has been the hugest blessing, especially because um, for really for all of my kids. And, and something that you and I have been talking about recently is how really everybody could benefit from OT. Something that I'm a big fan of, and I'm going to enact this policy when I'm the president of the world, because um, <laughs> I think that every kid that comes into care should automatically get assigned to a therapist because I think they all need therapy. I mean, really, everybody needs therapy, right? But you can't go through changes like that in your life, regardless of what the trauma was before removal. Mm -hmm. Just being removed from your family is a huge trauma. I feel like they should all be assigned a, a therapist uh, upon removal from their family. And I also think that they should all have occupational therapy because if everybody can benefit from occupational therapy, surely these kids mm -hmm. who have been through the trauma, the anxiety, the constant stress of knowing whether their needs mm -hmm. were going to be met and if they were going be protected yeah. could certainly benefit from them and I think that I've seen the way that it has helped my kids like little Jack I mean forget it I can't e I can't even what with, with what you've done for little Jack he is a completely different little human surely the same in many ways but his ability to cope and handle stimuli is a completely different story than what we used to like it used to really control our lives in dealing with like, okay, well we can't go or we can't go on time or we're gonna have to change the way we do A, B, and C because he's having a meltdown, you yeah. know? The way he responds to things in his world right now are completely different. So why can't every kid in foster care have that, mm -hmm. you know? And that's the goal of therapy. The goal is that you know where you were, you saw what you needed to do, and then you are in the present and you're thinking about, wow, this is so much better. Mm -hmm. And that's what I want for all my families. Like all the families that I service, I just want, even if it's one thing that makes a huge difference in their lives, when I discharge that kiddo, I want it to be that their life is just a little bit easier, that the child is happier, joyfully <laughs> My life is a lot of bit easier without getting shoes thrown at my head all the time. <laughs> yeah, well, he is yeah, a different that's kid. Good. Well, that's I'm getting shoes thrown just by different kids. Yeah. He needs more time. Archie, <laughs> <laughs> can you tell us about like your greatest win or your best day or like a time that you were like, wow, this makes it all worth it. This sounds kind of corny, but when I wake up on Monday, I don't think, oh, I have to go to work. I think, okay, I'm starting a new week. I can't wait to see what the parents are going to tell me. I'm excited to hear what the kids have accomplished. Mm -hmm. And, you know, last week was the first week of school for a lot of the kids. And I have to say my heart was so full because I would say every message that I got from parents was positive. Oh, the kids had a great day. The kids had a great week. I got pictures from families <laughs> that their child was beaming from ear to ear. Aww. And I have to say, you know, that that's huge. That's yeah. a really huge deal. So I can't say that there's one greatest win or one best yeah. day. I could be having not such a great day because maybe I'm running late and I got every red light and it's pouring mm -hmm. down raining and I have to carry all my stuff out of my van in the pouring rain. <laughs> and then here comes my kiddo that I'm I'm going to see with an umbrella Aww. walking out to my van helping me gather my stuff and Jack junior my heart is like oh my gosh this kid is amazing i wouldn't say there's a best day or a win mm -hmm. per se i would say that 
I'm very blessed and fortunate to have gone down the career path that mm-hmm. I feel like was where I belong. I think that's true. And yeah. I can honestly say I love what I do. I love the families I service. I love the kids that I work with. And I'm grateful for the organization that I work for. And I am so happy to be making a difference in people's lives. And the win is when a parent tells me that their child slept through the night. The win mm-hmm. is when the parent tells me they had a great first day of their Mm-hmm. brand new school because the last school that they left maybe they were getting bullied maybe it just wasn't the right fit and I encourage the family to try something new can you tell us about some of your hardest times as an OT or some of the biggest challenges you face as an OT some of the biggest challenges I think were in the beginning when I first started I was not a mom I was a brand new grad I had high expectations of my own self mm-hmm. and so I would devise these huge home programs and And then when the parents didn't follow through, I would be frustrated and think, well, gosh, why aren't they doing these things? Well, now I know that I was asking way too much and the expectations were just outrageous. It takes sometimes you being a parent to realize what other parents may need. So I would say as I've evolved and been a therapist for a long time, I have greater compassion and understanding Mm -hmm. when parents are like, I just couldn't do it. There's no way. And it's not about me. It's about finding the right techniques and strategies and protocols that fit into that family's lives. If a family has eight kids, they're not going to always be able to do every single thing that... No, I suck at home programs. I suck. <laughs> I'll suck. be like, this horrible thing happened. It was so hard. And she'll be like, well, did you do blah, blah, blah? No. No, that's Thanks. not true because suck. I asked if you did embracing squeeze and you did it. Oh, well, sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. So every family is unique and what one family needs isn't exactly what the other family needs. And my, I guess my thing is, is sometimes when a family is very, has a very challenging child and the mom is really on board for techniques and strategies, it even pushes me harder to be a better therapist, to be finding the answers, Mm -hmm. to look harder because this parent needs that from me. Speaking of working with parents, what do you think are some basic things that parents can do to work better with you and to make your job easier? Communicate is the number one. If I give you a treatment technique and it just isn't working, tell me. If it's not fitting into your family, tell me. If you feel like this this situation isn't working, if I'm seeing the child at school and you're feeling disconnected, tell me. I think the communication piece is the most important thing. And then being honest with yourself, say, if I gave the pressure protocol out and I asked for you to do it for a whole week and you only did it twice, okay, tell me mm-hmm. that you only did it twice. That helps me understand what's going on more. Yeah, like the progress that was made or not made. Or right, whatever. that yeah. it wasn't the program that failed, it was yeah. that there the the schedule failed. It it just isn't feasible in this family's life. Can you give me a word that you think people would use to describe an occupational therapist? A word to describe occupational therapy would be function. We want to function in our home. We want to function in our society. We want to function in our community. We want to function in our classroom and be the highest level ability Mm -hmm. we can be. How do you see the role of occupational therapy with the kids that we have in child welfare? Every child deserves to have the highest level of opportunity possible. If a child is experiencing difficulty in fine motor skills, gross motor skills, social emotional skills, peer interactions, a screening at the very least, 
I feel like there should be more of a role of occupational therapy in child welfare. But I think that a lot of the times when people have a child, whether that's a foster placement or like a relative placement, and they feel like the child is so difficult that it might be outside of their ability to continue caring for the child rather than disrupting, perhaps consider occupational therapy. I think people always jump to, oh, they need mental health therapy or let's put them on meds or, you know, let's try this, that. But rarely do I hear, hey, let's consider occupational therapy. But I know that the behaviors that little Jack was having are some that a lot of people would have disrupted for. It made our lives so much easier to have him be at the place that he's at after occupational therapy. And it really was such a short amount. I remember I kept telling everybody that I talked to about you, she is freaking magic. <laughs> like within a couple of months, my child is completely different. Like I think it was like just like a couple of months and he stopped throwing his shoes, which was like a constant thing. Always the shoe throwing, always the sock throwing and just screaming, but not talking, not verbalizing what he needed. And within a couple of months that changed. So if people would consider adding occupational therapy in as one of those interventions when a child has behaviors to at least consider a screening could make a world of difference. Mm -hmm. I think it's lack of knowledge, not knowing that the service is available, Mm -hmm. not knowing what it is. Or what it's for. Exactly. Exactly. We're not behaviorist. We're not an ABA specialist. So a lot of times people think behavior, oh, we need a behavioral specialist or we need a psychologist or a mental health counselor. That's true. I didn't know what an OT was. I mean, until I was out of grad school, to be honest. And I remember thinking, what a cool thing. But I had no idea. So, and I do think that we take a lot of really typical behavior and we we make it clinical, you know? Behavior is communication. That's how it is kids communication. communicate. And, and reframing it as a symptom, I do think is a better way. It's so often a symptom of kids who are struggling with adjustment or kids who are hypervigilant and they're having trouble with anxiety or, or other things. So there's various ways you can look at it. I definitely think almost every child in care would benefit from OT or at least an evaluation. There are a few that I'm sure are just really resilient and doing great, but I wish we could like clone But it you. wouldn't hurt to do an eval. It wouldn't. And I wish we had a hundred of you because I, I know so many kids who could benefit so much. I mean, I'm not telling anybody about RG anymore. Because yeah. There are a lot of amazing occupational therapists and there are so many therapists also who are not occupational therapists who do great work in reflex integration. What would surprise most people to learn about occupational therapy? What would surprise people, I would say, about occupational therapy is that it's not just working with the upper extremities. A lot of people who are in rehab or who've had rehab experiences think, oh, OTs work with upper extremity strengthening or or hand therapy. When you work in the pediatric population, you are working with the whole child. So you're working on mental health issues. You're working on gross motor skills, fine motor skills. You're working on self-help skills like activities of daily living, dressing, feeding, grooming, bathing. You're working on handwriting. Anything that's going to help that child be participating fully in their day. In addition to sensory processing skills, that's how we take in information through our senses, our eyes, ears, skin, movement, taste, smell and how our brain makes sense of that information. Kat mentioned that her ears are sensitive and she tells her kids to turn it down. So that's a hypersensitivity in the 
auditory system. So there's a reason for that. There's work that I can do to help you with that. Those types of things don't make you have a sensory processing delay. It just means that right now that's your heightened organ and it needs to be calmed down a little bit. And usually it's due to some kind of trauma, stress, work-related issues, Mm -hmm. those kind of things as far as overuse. When I was doing a program called Interactive Metronome and I did it four days a week and I did it for a couple hours a day, you have to listen to a cowbell sound on headphones. Oh, no. With the kids. And so they have to clap or step in tune to this cowbell sound this metronome sound and I started developing hypersensitivity in my auditory system because of this overuse of information going into my ear and then I'm like oh I can't vacuum I can't oh just be drained yeah so our work can cause us to have yeah these work-related stressors oh I hesitate to answer the phone for some people because I know that the first thing out of their mouth is loud like there are several people who call and they're like hey and I don't want to (laughs) answer because they're too loud Mm mm-hmm and, but I always assumed it's because my parents are deaf that mm. I was hypersensitive. And maybe it is. Or maybe I, there was too much auditory discrimination at a young age. I have no idea. RG, what do you want people to know about occupational therapy, like, in a nutshell? I want people to know that there's hope that potentially their children or child can get services and that things can be easier for them. Mm. There's options available and that if it comes to them having to think about their child leaving their home, maybe try OT first and give it a shot and see if it makes a difference because it could potentially make a difference in their lives and their child's lives that they're hosting. So you deal with a lot every day, like you're taking on people's like frustrations and struggles. And sometimes people probably have waited for you all week just so they can be like, oh my gosh, I have to or for eight years. Yeah. <laughs> um, the miracle workers here. Okay, sit down so we can hold you hostage, you know. Um, so what do you do? Like, what is your self-care routine? What do you do to, like, fill your cup back up so you can start again on Monday? I have three children of my own. Uh-huh. And when I first started as an OT, I never could imagine having children because I thought I'll be so tired. I won't be able to go home and have anything left because I do give all of me. However, I think it's like, I'm assuming having eight children to love at home, the more you have, the more you love and the more you do and you just keep going. So what is my self-care routine? I don't watch TV. I hate to say I cannot listen to the news. It's just negative and toxic. So I just can't handle it. I chat with my friends on the way in between clients. I really try to take time to enjoy being with my kids Mm -hmm. and living in the moment. I feel like living in the present is really, really important. We can't change the past. And yes, I try to plan for the future, but right here and now is where I want to be. I know my kids are going to grow up and have their own lives and be adults one day. So I really try to take time to be the mom that I really want to be for them. And I do like to go out to eat. (laughs) That's one of my things. I'm a foodie. So I like finding new restaurants and uh, going out and trying new foods and new restaurants. What's your favorite type of cuisine? I don't think I have one, to be honest with you. I love everything. Tonight I'm going to a 
Asian fusion restaurants, like a French Vietnamese fusion restaurant. Wow. I want to hear about that. So I try to find unique places. Like I'll search new restaurants that come up and just want to go dive in. Fun. Yeah. I don't exercise. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think the community can do to prevent more kids needing to come into care? Maybe there could be more resources in the school system for parents. So that, like, if they have uh, a hotline to call, I don't even know if this exists, but you know what I'm saying? Like, maybe teachers need to be more vigilant. Maybe camp counselors and youth administrators and, you know what I'm saying? Like, Like, the general population who works with children need to be more vigilant. Probably school teachers, because kids have to go to school, right? Like, it's truancy if your kid doesn't go to school, but not everybody takes their kid to church, and not everybody takes their kid to camp. And and teachers are supposed to report things, right? Like, they're supposed to report if something's weird or seems suspicious or the kid doesn't come. Yeah. Like, Sophia just told me the other day that, okay, they've been in school for four days. The boy was wearing the same outfit for four days Aww. in fifth grade. And she's like, Mom, maybe he just really... And she's so sweet. She's like, Mom, maybe he just really likes that outfit. <laughs> I'm thinking that kid has no other clothes. Nobody's paying attention to what he's wearing. Okay, so I think that a a lot of reports do come in from teachers. And I just know that during the summer, a lot less kids come into care. And when school starts up again, there's a flood of kids that come into care. There's a flood right when school gets out because teachers worry about kids being at home all the time. And not eating and not like, yeah. yeah. And so I guess my thought is, is like, Okay, well, well, the first thought I'm assuming with a teacher is we got to get this kid out of the home. But like, what's the network of safety for the parent being able to keep their child in care and getting help? You're totally onto something. I mean, first of all, only 5% of kids come into care that there's a call because a lot of times the CPI just offers help. Like, here's some resources. Here's a program. Here's whatever. Because parents, a lot of them really do accept the help in whatever form that is. But there is something called community schools there are these schools and there aren't many but it's such a good idea they have washers and dryers Mm. they have a place where a child can get their hair cut they have dentists they have doctors they have like vision screenings it's a community inside a school and in those areas like all the stats are so much better than in other areas you know like child welfare involvement is down because people have one place to go to get a lot of their needs met and I'm sure I'm missing so much I know for sure there's one in New York I think it's like a fantastic idea because the community supervision that you're talking about where the teacher has eyes on the student that matters a lot although there are some people who just don't send their kids to school they just don't but when you have a place where you can get those things like lice treatment oh my gosh seriously yes dental care or there's a a doctor at your school who comes on Tuesdays or whatever. I'm kind of filling in the blanks. I don't, you know, it's been probably a year since I learned about this, but where the resources are all at the same place. I mean, as a mom, it's overwhelming to me Mm -hmm. that we have to go to the dentist, the eye doctor, the pediatrician, the, you know, all these different places. And think if you didn't have a car. Exactly. Or a job and you couldn't pay for the gas to put in your car to get your kid to the pediatrician. Yes. Or a washroom dryer. I know teachers are overworked and I know teachers are stressed but it would be nice if they had that training to be more sensitive to kids who are potentially in an environment that isn't safe well and I think what you were saying is that if teachers could call more in agreement with that I think teachers do call but I think they don't call soon enough I think they're worried they don't want to have a kid
kid removed and it'd be their fault if it wasn't that big of an issue. But if they were to call for the little things, those are the things that someone can help somebody with. If you're waiting to see a kid come in with a black eye and, you know, a busted nose or some type of very visible thing showing you that there is a problem at home, if these teachers could call in and report the smaller things too, because those are things that they could get help with. Like nobody's going to remove a kid because their parent has one outfit, but they might bring them some clothes or put them in touch with resources where they can get clothes for their kid. I feel like so many people in our culture are afraid to get in someone else's business, but we need to be more in each other's Mm -hmm. business because that's how we support and love each other as a community, as a culture. You know, if you notice the kid has the same outfit for four days in a row and you're the teacher, maybe ask the mom, hey, I've got some extra clothes in your son's size. Can I send them your way? If you're not able to do that, talk to the parent and try and get them some resources. If that doesn't work, call in a report. And then when the CPI goes out, they can connect the parent to resources and might find other issues that they're able to help with rather than just saying, oh, it's not that big of an issue. I'm not going to call in a report. And then this parent is really struggling and doesn't have a support system and doesn't know anybody to help them. And it gets worse and snowballs until the child has to be removed. So I think you definitely are onto something as far as having teachers be less uncomfortable with calling a report in. Yeah. And maybe it's a class. Maybe it's a a continued education thing that they all participate in. But what about schools having resources, an open door policy? If you are in need, come to us. They do the free and reduced lunch, but maybe there needs to be more than just free and reduced lunch. If it's a uniform school, this is our uniform closet. If you are in need, come to the uniform closet and get your child a uniform. Those kind of things, like the $50 rack room shoe gift cards that your organization gives out. More schools could be doing those kind of things for kids, back to school backpacks. They want everybody to bring in all these school supplies. By the time you get done buying school supplies for your child. I mean, it's a lot of money. <laughs> so much money. We were just I just supplied that. six kids. And there was one of my kids that was supposed to bring in like eight of those big canisters of Clorox wipes. And I'm like, that's like 30 bucks. And that's just one of the 30 items on the list of one of my six kids. Like I can't, I think I sent like four in instead of eight or whatever, but like. Eight is a lot. Where are they even going to put those? I have two kids in middle school and you know, they each have like seven teachers and each of the seven teachers had that extra bonus list and I was like I can't even keep track of who wants what on top of the hundreds of dollars I already spent yeah on all the stuff that they need RG what are your goals to make positive change within our community. One of the reasons why I said yes to being on this podcast is just because I realized working with families who have kids in foster care, how important it is to have occupational therapy. And I've gotten a referral in a different area that I couldn't service. And I was excited to send that referral to another therapist that works in that area. I feel like getting the word out, the more kids we can service, the more kids that potentially could be impacted and benefit. So my goal is let's get more kids serviced. Yeah. If more people know about OT, then more people will become OTs. We could probably use a lot more OTs. Can you teach them though? So they're all like, you. There, <laughs> there is a need for OTs for sure. There's definitely currently a shortage and I do get text messages from other clinicians wanting to hire me because they need therapist. I'm excited though, because more and more young people that I meet 
know what an OT is. Mm -hmm. High school students, graduate students. Right now, I can't take any volunteers or observers or students unless they're in a graduate program because of the global pandemic. Mm -hmm. But I used to take people and have observers and talk to them about it. But I am excited that more and more people know about it. Argy, thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you you. for having me. It's a pleasure being here. Thank you so much for joining us today. Make sure you subscribe and follow us on social. We hope that you join us again next time and keep on fostering the future.